I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to Countercurrents Radio. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Sebastian and Paul from Antelope Hill Publishing. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes. So I've been following Antelope Hill for a couple of years now, and it occurred to me I really should just meet you guys. And after there was a big doxing article directed at some members of the team, and I read through it, I thought, gosh, these are very impressive people. We really do attract some very impressive people to our larger cause. And so I sent an email at that time, I think it was a year or two ago now, time flies, asking for an interview, inviting people for, for an interview. And finally, I heard back and well, I initially, I initially heard back and, and the reaction was, well, it's a little hot now because of this doxing that went on. But then I recently heard back and I, I heard that some of the guys on the team were game to do an interview. So welcome to the show. This is going to be me being a complete normie and newbie, just asking you absolutely basic questions because I'm full of basic questions about Antelope Hill. So can you tell us when did you start Antelope Hill, first of all? Sure. So it was, I believe the the intention was was formed before COVID, but the, the actual full launch was kind of delayed because of the events of early 2020. But back in, it was like the end of 2019, my wife, Maggie and Constantine, as well as some of the other early members and myself decided that this would be a good project to do. And it was basically surrounding one specific book, and that was The Burning Souls by Leon de Grell. Now, to get the process started, we actually did produce and begin selling Patrick Pierce's collected works before we officially launched the website and started advertising with some of our other friendly platforms for The Burning Souls. But that was, yeah, so that was... Uh, more than three years ago, about three and a half years ago. I think the official launch was was technically September of 2020. So more than three years. That's great. So how many titles have you now brought out in, in a little more than three years? Oh boy. I think, I think 60, wasn't it, Paul? Yes, I believe we're pushing, we're, 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 we must be over 60 at this point because we've held to pretty consistently more than 20 books a year. We at first were doing a hard two books a month, uh, but it just, we had to pull back a little bit just because of production, I mean, it's it's very difficult, as I'm sure you know, Greg, to to get these books through a full editing process and formatted mm -hmm. and printed and everything like that. So we've been consistently more than 20 books a year, though, so must be over 60. Well, uh, so how many people work on Antelope Hill? Um, well, Sebastian, do you know how many editors we actually have that that contract with us? Well, I know for editors, we probably have around six to eight, I think. But uh, those are just the regulars. Sometimes yeah. people come and go, as I'm sure you know. There's, of course, translators. We've got another probably six to eight different translators that have uh, worked for us more or less consistently. And then um, there's, I think there's on there's about six people that regularly that are on the the general staff for for the 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 company that you know do various different tasks. Do you have your design and cover art in in-house or is that something that is uh, contracted out to different people? Yeah, yeah no, uh, we, we do have an in-house graphic designer. Our graphic designer, Swifty, is very talented and she's she's been with us from the beginning. And uh, yeah, 
we don't we don't hire any Pajits on Fiverr or anything like that to do the covers. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a unity of style. So I thought that there might be one person, or at least that you have a very uh, worked out style sheet uh, that maybe multiple people were working from. Yeah, just Swifty, and she does great work. Okay. Well, why don't we take a, a step back from the practical things. And can you tell me a bit about your editorial focus and editorial philosophy? What are you trying to do with these books? I mean, we, we believe that there is a certain section of uh, literature that, that tells a story about the West and white people and, and, and a history of, of that that is repressed. It's not all of it. There's plenty of classical literature that you can still access, but there is, there's a story, a lot of it surrounding early uh, half of the 20th century and history of, of fascism and national socialism, but much more as well. You know, some, some more recent stuff. We have fiction as well, but it's all about telling, telling a story that is, that is not allowed or at the very least is is not promoted readily through the existing large book publishers and and uh, producers that, uh, that serve the world with the majority of their literature yeah and to add to that a little bit I, I remember there, there was a video back on YouTube back back in the days when you were allowed on there Greg actually it was a talk that you gave about Martin Heidegger and I remember thinking to myself wow it's amazing like up to that point I really wasn't familiar with Heidegger at all and it got me to thinking just how many thinkers and philosophers we just don't hear about because of all the selection bias in not only our uh, academia, but our media as well. These are just entire schools of thought we don't hear about in day-to-day -day life. And that's definitely something that we really want to help bring to light. It's not just historical figures either, but also different perspectives and even fiction as well. Um, because I'm, I'm sure that... Uh, you know, this audience has heard the horror stories of, of people trying to get published with these big publishing houses. And, you know, if you're not gay or you're not a whatever mystery me kind of person, then they're just not going to be interested in your perspective. Um, so just the same, the kind of lens that we can view fiction from is also something that we feel we can offer a unique platform for people who might be pushed out of regular publishing houses as well. Certainly, certainly. We, we do have a growing selection of, of fiction literature that that very proud of it's 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 excellent writing and uh you know it, it's definitely it doesn't check the boxes of, of the you know maxwell and penguin that's look that they're looking for so what are your best sellers so far Ooh, well and, and okay, first, what are your bestsellers? And then what are the books that you think deserve to be bestsellers? What are your favorite books that you'd like to promote a little bit more? Well, that's a good question. So the actual, I'll start with the actual bestsellers, the sort of long running bestseller, uh, probably to very few people's surprise is In His Own Words, which is a collection of excerpts from Adolf Hitler's speeches throughout his political life. And that is, of course, you know, something that's not generally very available in the Western world. And, you know, so it, it is kind of unique in that and, and, you know, that and then also combination of such a historically notable man uh, makes it 
there's a lot of demand for that one. Uh, we also we do offer that one for whatever reason that's still allowed on Amazon. And uh, so we, it is funny some of the countries that we get there's there's some popularity in uh, in Asia <laughs> uh, for that book as well. But uh, that one, um, uh, Roy Nationalists. We have a few selections from him. His uh, his magazine hardbound uh, editions uh, from 2022 and 2021. Man's World. Uh, those are pretty high grossing. They're you know high gloss, uh, full color magazine print hardbound. Uh, so you know it's a sort of a premium product that uh, you know his large audience is happy to patronize. So that's that's another good seller. Um, the Burning Souls still remains one of our best sellers. Most recently, actually, somewhat to the team's surprise, there's been a couple books. A little bit earlier, there was Testament of a Russian Fascist, which was our first hardcover-only book. Uh, actually, has been selling very well, a lot very popular. And um, also, Giles Corey, uh, The Sword of Christ, uh, has been a very very uh big seller recently that was that was uh one of our most recent releases i think that was only a month or so ago uh that we released that one um, yeah, so I, pretty diverse yeah go ahead oh uh, hey, correct me if i'm wrong paul what isn't uh the, i think the transgender industrial complex was a uh, yes i did <laughs> i forgot the yes uh transgender industrial complex is still one of our most popular. that was from 2021 um our first book from uh scott howard which we now have three books from uh is a was a a smash hit when it first released and maintains to be one of the uh, best sellers. So uh, you can go ahead, uh, Sebastian, if, if the, there's any books that you really like that, that you think uh, should sell better and then I'll, I'll say something. Oh yeah. Well, I definitely want to take the opportunity to just talk about the culture of the Teutons. You know, maybe I'm a little biased because I did edit that book, but it, it is a reprint, but it's an extraordinarily interesting deep dive onto the history of Germanic Europe, uh, like vis-a-vis, the Roman Empire or even India or Greece. And I think everybody should read it, really. Very cool. Yeah. One of my recent favorites is Marty Phillips' second book, Millennium, a collection of uh, four short stories that I just, I I absolutely, I mean, and it sells well, but I, I just, I can't praise it enough. I, I think it's fantastic literature. I think Marty is a very talented writer. I think a lot of people would very much enjoy that book. And uh, I think it uh, definitely gets attention, but I think uh, everyone should read it similar <laughs> to Sebastian. That's one of yeah our fiction books. And then his first book also, Let Them yes. Look West. As far as I'm concerned, that's also one of our bestsellers, especially in the fiction category. Yes, that that did. That was, a, that was another one that sort of popped really, really hard that that sold like crazy upon first release um and it and as yeah it continues to sell but yeah marty's definitely a talented writer let me ask you about a few titles that i'm curious about one is why did you decide to reprint gentile's the philosophy of marx that was an interesting choice well i think that m uh, many people don't know much about the origins of Italian fascism, the philosophical and, and, and uh, even early political. I mean, I think that even among, you know, people who would maybe identify themselves as fascists, I think there is kind of a general lack of, of knowledge. I mean, even in myself, I, I'm going to count myself among that. that uh, and so we, we thought it would be 
valuable to to find a work that wasn't readily available. And that's that's one of the other things that we try and look for in a reprint anyway, as something that is not either out of print or or if it is print, it's, it's like exorbitantly expensive or something like that. And this book fit that criteria and was also something that told, uh, like gave a little bit of a background into the mind of, of one of the early influences on Italian fascism, that being Gentile. That's interesting. Uh, another another title that I'm curious about is your your Carl Schmidt collection. I'm trying trying to find that online right now. So that um, that is um, uh, unfortunately that we we do not offer anymore. There was a, a confusion and a pretty long back and forth with a German publishing house that it turns out in fact still has the rights to to that, and so they. They have asked us to not publish that, but it will be in public domain, or at least some of his writings will be in public domain soon. Um, mm -hmm. So unfortunately, that was an early uh, lesson for us um, mm -hmm. when we were getting started. It's uh, uh, copyright, copyright, historical copyright laws is not as simple as you might think at the outset. There's no established databases of to verify you know, uh -huh. that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I I was surprised by that, and I was surprised that it yeah it disappeared from your website. Uh, another title that I I think is very interesting uh, that you chose to reprint was an Outlaw's Diary by Cecile Torme. How did that come on your radar? So that was that was one of our first books that we put out. That was very early on, I believe, probably still in twenty twenty. That we released that uh, telling the story of you know of eastern europe and and the 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 effects of the the creeping soviet occupation and and the story of of uh you know uh the flight from that and and uh and sort of the 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 human side of of what was a very totalizing campaign of of destruction through the Eastern Europe from the, the Soviets. So that was uh, sort of hitting the, the, that part of our, of our catalog that uh, fulfills a, a anti-communist uh, lens, let's say that. Yeah. So an, another title that I'm, I'm very curious about, and we did review this at Countercurrents, is The American Regime by an anonymous January 6th prisoner. That's a very interesting book, and I'm wondering how it's been received. It strikes me as a very good book for purple-pilled people to kind of bring them along. Has it, has it been well-received, and do you think it's going to have a—do you think it's going to age well? Oh, I do. I certainly think it's going to age well. The book itself has sold pretty, pretty well in— in outside of our normal circles, as you might imagine, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the purple pill people, uh, people that maybe are skeptical of of the current governance, but not you know, don't don't subscribe to all of our critiques of of the American regime, as it were. But it, it, that's certainly true. There's I I know for a fact that it's uh, made its rounds on Patriots.win, which is I believe the inheritor to the old R the Donald R slash the Donald crowd of people that sort of heavy crossover with a QAnon uh, territory. So I think people people that are willing to criticize 
the established order, but maybe don't really have much direction or you know a the same level of critique that we do. Definitely have had some exposure to this book. As far as how many of those people came to consume more, I, I'm not sure myself, but uh, I, I do know that we've definitely sold that book to an audience that we don't normally reach. Um, so. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I have seen people online on on Dot Win saying good things about that book, and I don't think they're all just our guys. I think those are the kinds of people that you normally would have expected to see on R the Donald back when it was still allowed on Reddit. So I think a lot of the people that carried over from Reddit to there and weren't just you know who were just our guys shilling things there I do actually like that book. I think a lot of people are really ripe for that kind of messaging is just that, you know, because the information sphere is so controlled in Western countries, they uh, have limited options to, to view it. It's an interesting question. How do we reach people who are not already in our camp and bring them over? The, that kind of outreach seems extremely valuable. I tried to <laughs> look into the QAnon stuff a little bit and retreated in complete disgust because it's just an absolute wasteland of, of just gibbering irrationality. But there's, there's got to be some way to bring some of these people along. Some of them are not complete. I mean, some of them are not ineducable, I would imagine. And it, it, it bothers me that so much intellectually empty and arbitrary and obviously uh, bad faith stuff can just gobble up all the air in the room that can uh, occupy people on the right chasing chasing fantasies it's it's a big issue how do we how do we debug these people and how do we do outreach to these people how do we save these people people like the alex jones audience can some of these people be saved and what kind of literature might do that i think it's it's a very complicated question and because the unfortunate part is you can't really take um, these kinds of social spheres or whatever niche internet niche communities as individuals. I don't I don't think that is an effective way of looking at these groups because the vast majority of the populations of these areas are, are people that that actually can't make well-informed decisions, I think, about their their political ideas. They, they are very much in, ingrained in that camp thinking that, that they, they form identities around their political beliefs and, and they patriot or, you know, however they, they imagine it in, in themselves. And they look to certain sources of information for the definition of that identity that they take on. And so I think that probably the answer is more along the lines of undermining those sources of information and delegitimizing them than it is about any argument or rational presentation of a, an alternate idea for these people. I think that they need to see their heroes like Alex Jones and, and whatever, uh, it, you know, frankly, embarrassed and undermined publicly in such a way as to invalidate their association and trust, I guess, and, and identification with those people 
I don't know that that answers your question. I don't know what book does that, but no. <laughs> I, I guess think, you could write um, a book about that. Yeah, maybe. You know, go, going along with that, I, I think there's a huge power to social proof and status, especially among liberals. Status is very important, and and I think for the right, for the a lot of the right wing, and I'm kind of speaking from personal experience here. I, I kind of hate to grant this to leftists, but I, I think they have a point when they say that like a lot of right wingers energy comes from simply disliking the left because i know that was the case for me because back 10 to 15 years ago the information sphere online was a little bit less corralled and schizophrenic than it is now but i remember really going out of my way to research alternative viewpoints simply because i really didn't like being hit over the head with the sledgehammer of propaganda that, that school was feeding us all and i think if people realize just that there there is in fact like a professional organization with a real message, it's not run by a bunch of crazy people or CIA agents like QAnon probably is. I think just just the status of that alone will go a long way to helping people kind of overcome some of the you know the ditzy things about the mainstream conservative movement today. So I think you know arguments aside, because obviously like talking points of specific. Uh, ideologies and and political views are, are a whole nother discussion. But I, I think just, you know, kind of to reiterate, just having social proof and a valuable, well-run organization actually pushing these things will kind of attract people in and of itself, you know, censorship issues aside. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I want to double down on that. That's, that is definitely true across the board for, for, sources of information in, you know, intellectual publishers like ourselves, um, and as well as, uh, you know, any organization that is pushing a message, being professional and looking put together, being consistent and reliable in the presentation of a, of a message is, is probably, in my opinion, even more important than the quality or content of that message like the tone or any any number of different things that that might be i think our temptation sometimes is to focus on the arguments or the content or like the quality of what we're saying our ideas when they come down to it are are actually rather simple now there's a very interesting and rich philosophical foundation and and history and and content to it but it really isn't often that complicated to present and i think sometimes as a milieu we get caught up in trying to present a totality or substance that, that isn't necessary when we ought to spend our efforts on a professional, reliable, you know, institutional force behind the message. At NLO Pill, we've always taken professionalism very seriously. We want to, you know, sometimes we, we mess up and we like to have fun sometimes as well, but we definitely want to be taken seriously as a business, as a publisher that is presenting valuable ideas regularly and consistently and with a consistent and reliable quality of production and, and distribution and, and everything like that. What I will say, though, is, as you said, Sebastian, that the it's, it's so important to have that professionalism. I'm just in my head, I'm imagining these people saying like, ah, well, you know, you <laughs> clearly it's the CIA or the FBI because of how put together they are. So there's already kind of that built in rebuke uh, the fed jacketing is a very common yeah. Yeah. patriot front are feds because yeah, they're not right. obese 
Yes, the 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 um that that sort of antibody that they have to that attack is is definitely well ingrained in into their population. So I don't think that that in, at all invalidates the you know the intention or the necessity of it. But it is it is very well. It, it speaks to a a, a loser mentality. The mm. the assumption that nothing organically on the right could actually look good or be well organized. It's deeply insulting. I mean, they've they've in they've internalized this deeply insulting image of the right. I mean, there's there's a a lot of people say about the left that they that they don't they don't go after their radicals or they don't police their radicals in the same way that the right does. And I think that that's perhaps partially true. But what's I think more true is that the the substantive professionals on the right get ousted. Because if you present any any right wing idea with sufficient force and 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 presence, then then you're invariably going to be attacked as as some sort of heretic against liberalism. I mean, we've seen TPUSA; they've they've forced themselves into being nothing more than like you know Starbucks loving like like people. Like I remember some of their signs when I was in school that they would hand out that just had like bunch of corporate logos on it unironically you know endorsing corporate capitalism you know places that that you know do their best to undermine every social value that someone who might be a TPUSA supporter would actually hold and so i think that that causes a very very toxic unhealthy culture in the people that are left in what we might consider the mainstream of the right because all of the intellectuals, all of the professionals with actual conviction, and yeah, I mean, you can also call them radicals, I suppose, but I don't even really think that that's a fair judgment because often the ideas are are quite simple. They're, they're, they don't need to be complicated, as I was saying earlier. Those people are ousted from the ability to sort of be leaders and voices in, in the general right in a way that the left does not. I mean, you, you, know, you have your radical leftists that that are given sort of prestige you know if they're considered perhaps overly idealistic or whatever they are at least you know given prestige in a way that that people that that stray to the the right or try and present a forceful right-wing idea to the public are are not and so i think what you're left with is a culture of the rest of the people that are either swindlers or low class people that that have identified themselves as low class because that was the culture of the people le that were left because anyone who wanted to maintain a quality of class and a force of presence for right wing ideas has been ousted so i i think that that's that goes along with what you're saying that the the loser mentality it's it's the culture that's left when you kick out all the people that want to actually have conviction it's interesting. So one of you has basically laid out that the way to deal with, I guess, the normie right to Alex Jones spectrum is just to look good uh, and count on social proof. And the other has basically said that what we need to do again, rather than address their arguments or positions per se, is just to make their talking heads look bad. 
to delegitimize them. And Mockham, and I do think there's a there's a lot of truth to that. There's no question about it. But we've got to have substance too. We can't just look good. We've got to have substance. And it's the it's the 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 shine, the form that advertises the substance to everybody on first glance. There's no question about it. But we do have to work on the the substance matters. And and that includes, I think, honing in on the stuff these people get wrong or the or the or the way that they think and what's wrong with that. Their willingness to entertain arbitrary and crazy stuff that's being spoken by some internet oracle who claims that he's some regime insider. It's just astonishing the, the willingness of large numbers of people to, to believe that. And of course, the reason they believed it, so many of them, is that it was, it was a comforting belief system. And I think we have to attack these desires that people have for comforting belief systems that they're, that they're people on high who are really on our side, that there's a deep state that's really on our side. A lot of these QAnon illusions were, were actually very unradical assumptions about how America really works, that, that we have friends in high places. Uh, have you, have I think you ever a lot of, of that has to go away. Have you ever heard of the Soviet Operation Trust? You know, I have heard of that, um, but... It was- I can't, I can't, I couldn't say what it's about. So why don't you, uh, I just, I just find it amusing, like how it's basically like ripped straight from the pages of like this, this, the Soviet playbook, not to be like, well, everything that the modern totalitarian, uh, uh, Zog regime does is, is communism. I certainly don't believe that, but this one was just straight out of the pages. So tell me if this sounds familiar, Operation Trust was a, a program of where Soviet assets in the early Soviet Union were disseminating the information that there was an eminent czarist coup. Czarist loyalists were going to any day now, like you know, two weeks, two more weeks, uh, whatever the the timelines were. Very soon, they were going to have some sort of and replace the burgeoning Bolshevik and, and Soviet personnel out of power and rethrone the czar uh, and you know he would take his rightful place or whoever i actually don't know the timeline whether it was before or after they killed the uh, czar and his family but what was necessary to do was that that you should just keep your head down and wait for the signal wait for the cue and don't do anything radical because that might upset the plans uh, that of the the czarist loyalists that are already in positions of power that just need to have the final pieces in their puzzle aligned before they can take take back control of the the Russian government. It's just it's exactly QAnon to the the letter. As, uh, I wasn't even familiar with that. That's really interesting. Yeah, you can, it's, it's just, the, the Wikipedia page has all the information on it. You just look it up, Operation Trust. It just it reads exactly like a description of QAnon. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, really, quite diabolical too. Yeah. But, uh, who do you think was behind QAnon, and what was their I, game? I don't know, but I I don't actually find it that interesting. I I think that. It it became. I think that it was more emergent than it might feel uh, 
attempting to make it sound. I know I've just sort of made it sound like it, it was a top-down plan uh, in the way that Operation Trust was, and and I think some people definitely realized the value of it and pushed it from, uh, you know, maybe it was the FBI, CIA, I don't know. But I, I do think that a lot of it was just internet scammers, basically, that, that realized they could gain a large amount of attention by saying, absolutely nonsensical things that fit the criteria of the QAnon yeah, uh, and sort of genre of nonsense. And much to that point, I remember reading an old maxim online years and years ago about the way that modern information control works, which is obviously you can't just straight up delete information. So, so what you do if you're trying to obfuscate is you want to flood the information sphere with as much misinformation as you can. So say George Washington chopped down the cherry tree, like if you want to hide that, you spread a bunch of other stories like, oh, no, George Washington didn't chop it down. Uh, Abe Lincoln did it. Or he didn't chop it down with an axe. He actually used a chainsaw. Or in this case, he actually used a, he just burnt it down. And there's half a dozen or a dozen conflicting stories, and nobody really knows what to believe. And I, I think that's very much a deliberate strategy as far as controlling really what people are thinking in everyday life when you're constantly only hearing stuff like that and not really clear and lucid explanations from you know people in our camp i think there's a reason that the the youtube blood sports era kind of died down i just think that you know maybe not to toot our own horns too much but i think we kind of cut into that a little too well i think kind of can't have us just making a case because you know it's a little too convincing but you know that's obviously just me talking there yeah, I, I do think that these um, a lot of the lower level people, the people running Telegram channels with like fifty thousand subscribers or whatever, they're just like slightly sociopathic personalities that that have you know realized that they can gain attention and maybe some money if they can convince some portion of these people to give them money for something stupid like. Uh, you know the gold card, or whatever the free gas that people were supposed to get. Those there, there's been a number of different scams that that these people have run, and, and mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people do that just for the ability to, you know, get the clicks and 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 the the dopamine that comes from that. And and there's definitely some portion of people from the top that encouraged it, but I do think that that it wasn't something that like Donald Trump himself was in on or was planned from for years or something like that. I think I think it was an opportunistic thing. You know, the whole Telegram. I, I don't think it would have worked without Telegram. And Telegram didn't really blow up in the way that it did until recently. And I don't think that anyone's really in the position to be able to predict stuff like that. So I think I think there are a lot of very opportunistic people that that are monitoring these cultures and milieus and communities and mm -hmm. looking for ways to distract them more than it is like a like sort of regimented top-down organized coup or whatever a program of now. A lot of them are probably volunteer armies, people like Molly Conger, who just do it because because they're ideological. Mm -hmm. One thing that struck me about 9-11 truth, the 9-11 truth movement, was the the sheer irrationality of a lot of the things that they were putting forward. And the truculence with which they would respond to any naive criticisms or questions about it. I was very puzzled by that. Who are these people and why are they putting forward ideas that seem to violate uh, Occam's razor? And why are they doing it in such a 
thuggish manner. And of course, when 9-11 happened, the whole country saw it happen. I remember it was a Tuesday. And that evening, I went to a hate dinner, as we called it, in Atlanta. And the, the, the normal number had been doubled because everybody wanted to come and talk about it. I remember the following weekend when NBC and Reuters ran polls saying that two-thirds of the American public believe that this happened because of our relationship with Israel, our cozy relationship with Israel, which was, of course, antagonizing the entire Muslim world. Everybody saw the truth of it. That was the 9-11 truth. The 9-11 truth was this happened because of our relationship with Israel. And then, of course, there was stuff coming out that indicated that the Israelis had advanced knowledge of it. That was very suspicious. And then a, a, that got shit canned very quickly. That whole line of inquiry got ripped off the uh, mainstream channels and Fox News and the newspapers. They canned that. And then not too long after that, bubbling up from the recesses of the internet came all these crazy theories about just no, there weren't any airplanes. It was controlled demolition. What happened to the airplanes? We don't have to explain that. It was shocking to me. And I thought that what was going on was very transparently obvious that since the truth about 9-11 was so transparent to two thirds of the American public, we had to get a whole raft of completely quack, quacky, crazy conspiracies about it to bury this obvious truth under a huge mountain of bullshit. That's exactly uh, and, right. and that's what was done. Yeah, I think that goes and, very much into, into what I was saying about uh, yeah, George Washington chopped down that cherry tree. Abe Lincoln did it. You just yeah, have to yeah. redirect people's righteous skepticism into dumb rabbit holes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. In the late 90s, I believe, or maybe around 2000, Adam Parfrey uh, published uh, Apocalypse Culture 2, which is an interesting document of its times. And there was an article in there, and I cannot remember the author of it, unfortunately. It's been more than 20 years since I've read it. But in there, he was talking about this phenomenon in the 1990s on these sort of small cable TV shows and also maybe larger talk shows where these women were going around claiming that they had been trafficked and raped and peddled as, as prostitutes by prominent Republicans who are also Satanists. And by all accounts, these, these people seem completely nuts, but people in the, say, Christian conservative world fundamentalist Christians were eating this up and other people were eating it up and this was going around. And, you know, he, he was very, very detailed at the kinds of allegations and how obviously nutty a lot of this stuff sounded. And then it came out a couple years later that a prominent black Republican donor and sort of insider figure, I think in the Midwest was like a Satanist and a pedophile. And the, the argument that he put forward was this crazy stuff about Republican Satanist pedophiles that was going around in, in the sort of culture on the right where that kind of stuff would be eaten up was actually a way of inoculating the public 
knowing that eventually this truth would come out. And when the truth came out, they would, people would hear it and say, oh yeah, I, I remember hearing about that on some, some crazy attention-seeking woman on some trash talk show or something like that said that. And they just dismiss it. And I thought, you know, that's a very plausible hypothesis. It's the it's poisoning it's, the well. Like it's poisoning the well. It's, well. It's, it's, an, it's an inoculation. Yeah. Right. They 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 give you a little bit of the sort of the denatured bug that you're likely to catch eventually to create an immune system, immune response to it. So that when the truth comes out, it's like, yeah, I've already heard that. I heard that. That sounds like the X-Files, man. You know, and and you wander, you walk, you walk away and you you just don't you don't want to hear it. I think that given the fact that they can't completely lock down and control all information, they have to do things like that. And indeed, if I were running this zoo, that's the kind of stuff that I would be engaged in. So it it makes sense that people who are probably a lot cleverer and well-informed than I am about how to manipulate the public mind are doing things like that and maybe six or eight times more diabolical. Definitely. I, you know, I, I, I absolutely see what you're saying there. I do think that to understand the psychology of the people who find themselves caught up in these things, I stumbled across a while ago something that, that still is, fa- is fascinating. I've been meaning to go back and, and look at it again. And it's, it was a Netflix documentary called Behind the Curve. And I'm sure you can find it somewhere else. I don't even know if it's still on Netflix. And of course, I don't endorse giving money to pedophiles. But it's a documentary about this whole community of flat earthers and their culture and some of their arguments and 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 you know the the makers of the documentary of course they have this like know-it-all libtard science you know ifing love science uh audience that they're that they're making the documentary for for people to laugh at these people and in doing so they actually sort of um fall prey to uh a (laughs) somewhat obvious not really trap, but they, they almost make the the flat earthers look sympathetic because they never actually address most of their arguments. They just make them look silly. And you can imagine a flat earther actually watching that and coming out the other side feeling more convicted uh, in their in their ideas. But the 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 window that you get into these people's like the culture of their their community is I think is is probably about the same across QAnon and even like Alex Jones audience and there's definitely some overlap between those and and this this community but it is so like raw and unfiltered and almost depoliticized because it is flat earth and not you know anything about the government or or anything. And of course it sort of touches some of those other topics but but you can take it devoid of philosophical content in many ways because it is such a technical question of you know whether the earth is flat or spherical and i really do think that that window affords an understanding of where these people are and what their communities are actually like and how they reaffirm their usually rather obviously erroneous beliefs through that culture and through that you know, identitarian dynamic to to the communities that that these people find, and and I do think it is interesting because it, it, it sort of 
it sheds light on like the other end of sort of the natural inclination that's being taken advantage of by the people, as you mentioned, that are much smarter than us, that are, you know, at the, the helm of things trying to keep this Zog and Pony show on the rails. But just to see what they're playing off of and to see what we're dealing with in in terms of, of people that are being caught up in these these psyops, as it were. It is very interesting. I definitely recommend if people are interested in this, checking it out. That does sound very interesting. I, I would like to get a sense of the sociology of this. There are a couple thoughts that come to mind, and then I want to ask you a few practical questions before we wrap up. First of all, I know somebody who got into the whole flat earth thing for a while, and I was very dismayed by it. And and basically, my response to him was, well, look, there, there are two possibilities here that you need to entertain, and you need to tell me which is more likely, that the flat earth thing is true, and there is a vast conspiracy that's been going through, you know, thousands of years to conceal this effect, this fact for no apparent benefit, or is it more likely that there are some nihilists on the internet who are laughing at you because you bought their bullshit? And at that point, I never heard any more about the flat earth. I don't know if it sunk in, but I never heard any more about it. One of the things that strikes me as as very op-like about flat earth and how it shades into the sort of Alex Jones sphere and the QAnon sphere is that it inculcates a kind of epistemological nihilism, basically, where you you just sort of believe things that come from significant others in your marginalized community. And a lot of the things that these people believe, and the, the corollary of it is that everybody else is lying to them, consciously deceiving them, pulling the wool over their eyes, that there's this vast, malevolent network of people out there faking things just for shits and giggles, apparently. They want power or whatever. You know, the people who use terms like crisis actor, unironically, there are people who believe that. And it strikes me that if you really believe something like that, it basically destroys social trust. It completely dissolves the glue that can hold society together. And so although these people are nominally dissidents, they're so paranoid and incapable of trusting other people in the broader culture that they can't really gel into any kind of opposition. And it strikes me that in a society where you've got a malevolent elite that's trying to maintain control and their power is declining, that a certain number of them might basically have the view that, well, nobody believes our bullshit anymore and our power is declining, but we can manage this decline. And one of the ways that we can manage this decline is we can spread paranoia and distrust so widely in the society that even though nobody believes our bullshit anymore, nobody can gel together into an effective opposition block. They just become atomized. They just become useless. I I can see 
that kind of strategy being hatched at the highest levels of our establishment. I could also see that sort of strategy being pushed by foreign powers that want to d- destroy America from without. But but let me just ask you a couple quick questions before we wrap up, because I don't want to steal all your time today. One question is, how have you been dealing with deplatforming and censorship? How has that been going? Well, so we've taken sort of... Uh... We've, we've taken some lessons from the existing businesses and organizations that, that have been dealing with many of these deep platforming issues for a long time uh, before we even got started. So, so we were able to head off some of the things and, and, and make uh, our infrastructure a little bit more secure. Like uh, we made the decision very early to fulfill our own books so that we would not be reliant on print-on-demand services to maintain our product service. And that that's proven, I think, a fairly prescient decision. We have had a large portion of our catalog banned from Amazon. And so we are still able to serve those books to people. So that's just one thing. We choose our services very carefully. Any business contracts that we have with uh, other uh, commercial services or, or even individuals and we, we make sure that we do our due diligence, that we uh, find reliable people and uh, services that are not going to, uh, you know, maybe as Discord uh, is uh, somewhat uh, notorious for having done um, divulge uh, information from its users that uh, would pre- be presumed to be private. So, you know, we use secure email. We make sure that, that all of our services are robustly well, founded in systems that don't have any history of deplatforming. In addition, I'll say that we have been, we haven't had too much of a problem with um, things like payment processing because I believe that a lot of the avenue for deplatforming from those kinds of systems comes from a uh, a risk, not a reputational risk, but a it's justified on the grounds of a fraud risk because many many of the the people who are attempting to take credit card processing or what have you on on the internet use normal payment processing systems are providing digital services that uh, are typically have a history of of fraud and and you don't even need to prove that fraud is even being attempted on these systems for banks to already be skeptical and ready to deplatform and, and pull their services from those kinds of systems. So we're fulfilling the physical product. We're sending you a book in the mail. It's a lot, it's a lot less likely to have fraud. And so generally banks don't and payments like financial services don't have as much skepticism or sort of right off the bat with those kinds of services. And I do think that that makes a difference for sort of the, the most immediate and obvious service. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we, we've been lucky in many ways, but we also did do our due diligence. We, we've consulted as many people as would give us the time to learn from past mistakes and, and find a path forward that was, was stable and, and reliable. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'd like to talk to you more about this offline, uh, sure. yeah, privately. Can you tease us a bit with some of your future projects? 
some uh, of the things that are coming down the pike. Jin, I think would be better uh, for that. What are you excited about, Jim? Uh, Sebastian? Oh, well, one of those things is definitely, uh, I'm going to have to say this without doing the, the silly accent of, but Voce del Popolo, or Popoli, forget the Italian. It basically, it's a, it's a collection of Mussolini's speeches, I think will definitely be one of the more exciting things down in the pipeline as well. Keep it a little close to my chest for now. Uh, you know, sometimes plans change a little bit. Oh yeah, I know how that works. I don't. I don't want to say something and then end up disappointing people. But yeah, I really, I understand I, I'm, that. I'm quite confident in saying that the, uh, the the Mussolini speeches will not have any you know copyright problems or anything. <laughs> I'm also uh, I'm also very excited for that one. So I'll I'll double down. Uh, that that's going to be a uh, uh, certainly a, an exciting one. Um, so how do people follow your work? I put your web URL and your telegram uh, in a little crawler across the bottom of the screen for people, but are there other platforms, other ways that they can follow your work? Uh, we are also on uh, Twitter uh, or X or whatever it's called now. The website is where you can find our full catalog. We do offer many of our products on Amazon for international users. It's much cheaper to get it on Amazon because it will likely be printed in your home country or, or uh, economic region in the case of the EU. And But international shipping is very expensive. But for domestic users, customers, uh, the, our website always has a discount versus Amazon. So we, we do encourage people to buy direct from the website. So yeah, antelopehillpublishing.com as you have on the scroller. And let's see, what is our X? At Antelope Hill. So At Antelope Hill. Yep. Great. Well, well guys, I, I really appreciate it. This is a, a nice get acquainted session. I, I appreciate you running an ad at Countercurrents. We've run reviews of a number of your books and we will continue to do so. I'm looking over at my review copy stack. I, I can see a couple... Antelope Hill titles that need to find homes in the in the near future. Uh, so I I've always believed that a rising tide floats all boats in the movement. I've never had this attitude that because I publish books, I should feel jealous of other people publishing books. And in fact, uh, the primary activity at Countercurrents is as, as as a web scene and as a web scene with a lot of traffic, it's a natural place to run book reviews. So I feel that. I can help out other publishers, uh, you know, with uh, with reviews. So uh, I'll definitely pay attention to your titles coming out and try and find more reviewers for that. I think it's a it's a worthwhile project, and I, I want to do what I can to help. Well, we very much appreciate you having us on. Um, absolutely agree that uh, you know it's important to. Um, you know, so long as we're not trying to publish the same books, <laughs> it's, yeah, we should uh, have a little really behind a the scenes. <laughs> yeah, we we should have a little behind the scenes coordination sometimes. But yeah, we haven't stepped on one another's toes as far as I know, and I've actually yeah. sent a number of authors your way. Yes, yeah, so, we we appreciate that. Um, yeah, the yeah. So thank thank you so much for having us. Uh, we appreciate uh, your time as well, and uh, you know. Yes, it was wonderful. Let's do it again here. sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's you. definitely do that. I'm always saying, let's. This is just the first conversation of many, and oftentimes that's true. Uh, and so we should definitely, uh, we should definitely do this again, and maybe dig into a particular book or other issues at greater length. But this is a great get acquainted session, and I'm looking forward to talking again. 
Yes, me Absolutely. too. It'd be wonderful. It's like I said before the show, I've, I've been listening to, you know, the countercurrents off and on for years. So it's fun to actually be on it. Well, it's, it's great to finally make your acquaintance, both of you. So guys, thanks again so much. And we will definitely do this again.